Um, we're very excited to talk about uh, this project um, today, uh, share with you some of the um, thoughts that are coming out of this project, in particular a, a typology of um, college-going culture. Um, this research is based on a larger research project um, that uh, Eric Bettinger, another faculty member in the school, and I are heading out, are heading up, and it's a study of a college advising program, a national program. Um, Brent Evans, Brian Holzman, and Hody Santikian on here as well are graduate students on that project. Um, Jesse Foster is an advanced graduate student. She's the lead RA on the qualitative portion of the project. Um, and so Jesse and I have worked very closely. Um, Hody Santikian cannot be here, but is also a partner um, in this project. So, um, First, why study uh, college-going cultures? Um, that's sort of a rhetorical question. Um, maybe with rhetorical questions, you might go to Google. <laughs> and uh, so if you do a Google search, this one's a bit old already, but you get, in this case, uh, 260,000 results if you look for that term specifically. Um, and so this, this concept, this term is, is um, all over the educational um, landscape. Um, if you look into some of these entries, what you'll find is there's um, a lot of advocacy around college-going culture in schools. Um, the, there's uh, some policy attention in terms of policy-oriented briefs um, recommending that schools develop, uh, develop strong college-going cultures. Um, there's blogs about it, those kinds of things. Um, schools are taking this up for some interesting reason, my high school came up on the first page. <laughs> I think it knew where I went to school. Um, so it's an increasingly um, um, uh, popular notion and, and popular term. Um, and, um, and it's often linked, of course, to increasing the college-going rate, particularly for underserved populations, first-generation students, students of color, um, students in need. Um, but if you look at the uh, if you look at those those links and if you look at the actual research, <coughs> there's lots of references to college-going culture. There's very few empirical studies of college-going culture. So it's something that's in the air. It's a conception that's in the air that um, we have some idea about, some conception of, um, but there's not a lot of deep uh, study of it. Um, there's a couple of uh, frequently cited pieces that you'll see. Um, Jeannie Oakes um, and some colleagues put together a report. It was a report basically about uh, college readiness. Um, and in that report, they described college-going culture as uh, one of the essential conditions for increasing post-secondary access. And they define it as a place uh, where adults and peers see college-going as expected um, and attainable. Um, and so it's a popular notion, and that, that sort of gets to that sense of how people are thinking about what college-going cult culture is and why it's important. Um, but again, this is um, a report, and they, they came up with that definition um, basically through a review of the literature. Oh, sorry about that. Um, second piece, which, there it is. Um, this is by uh, Karen McClafferty. Um, and uh, Pat McDonough and Anne-Marie Nunez. Um, and this one um, 
is based on some action research that they did. They uh, had a team um, expressly trying to develop college-going culture in these middle schools and high schools. Um, and as an action research project, they collected um, data of the implementation of this project, um, conducted some interviews, and they developed what they call principles of college-going culture. Um, and this is what they came up as far as um, principles go. Um, college talk is essentially that um, in a college-going culture, there's lots of talk about college uh, among students and faculty. <clears throat> there are high expectations and clear expectations uh, for post-secondary um, attendance. There's lots of information um, and resources about the process, about colleges. Um, there's a comprehensive counseling model, and what they mean by that is that all counselors are college counselors. Um, there's a focus on the testing that's required to access college, the curriculum that's required um, uh, to be eligible um, uh, for college. Faculty are involved in the process. Family are involved in the process. Um, there are partnerships with uh, colleges, so we're talking about high school to university partnerships organized around this idea of college going and that there should be some cross-sector art articulation. And again, this idea of partnerships, but also going down uh, to the elementary sector as well. And they uh, put together these principles, um, again, based on their action research project. Um, what's, uh, what we take from this, um, however, is the principles get set up as um, kind of benchmarks um, that would say, okay, I have a college-going culture if I have these things. Right, and so uh, uh, that raises the question for us is if you're a school that's trying to develop a college culture, going culture and you don't have some of these things, well, what do you do? So there's, and they don't wrap a conceptual apparatus around that to uh, develop a sense of um, how these cultures develop, what might impede the development of these cultures, um, who are the key actors involved that uh, might help develop a strong college-going culture. Uh, one other piece that's out there, the College Board put out this thing called the Creating a College-Going Culture Guide, and within it there's an assessment. And the assessment is actually about 30 questions long, and so obviously this is for um, college or high school staff to look at and say, do we have a college-going culture? <clears throat> and this is actually another common way to think about college-going culture in terms of these benchmarks, and typically these quantitative benchmarks that we see at the top. So if we have, you know, what is your college, what is your graduation rate, college application rate, um, how many staff members have undergraduate or graduate degrees, and the sense that you get from this is that um, it's kind of like a test. If you score high on these things, then you have a strong college-going culture. Um, and this report that's put up at the College Board, they do follow this up with some strategies um, to answer these things in the affirmative. But again, it's not wrapped around a conceptual um, model to help schools understand how would we get there or what are we doing now that might be impeding the development of these cultures. <clears throat> so with that in mind, um, we had a research objective when looking at our data that we um, um, had the opportunity with the data that we had to 
create a theor theoretically driven and empirically based conception of what a college-going culture is. So let me tell you a little bit about our data. Um, our data is case study data. Um, and for this presentation, it's from 11 high schools. And uh, we term them high-need schools. These are schools with relatively low college-going rates, <clears throat> higher proportions of first-generation college aspirants, um, underrepresented minority students, low FCS students, sprinkled across um, those five states. Um, and these schools, we call them in transition because they all participate in this college advising program. An external program um, was invited into these high schools. Um, and the, the, these schools want to change their college-going cultures by bringing this program in. Um, so they see themselves, and as we came to know in our visits, as transitional schools, transitioning to um, schools with strong college-going cultures. Um, and in our site visits, we conducted a number, number of interviews across a uh, number of constituents. Um, um, later on, we, uh, we'll talk about other uh, case studies that are continuing on where we do some even more in-depth case studies. So that's the empirical side. Theoretical side, um, we bring to this conception um, theory and organizational culture and organizational obitus. Organizational culture is basically um, to understand how uh, normative beliefs uh, and practices and shared understandings shape behavior in an organization. And as we went into our cases and our case study data, we drew upon shine in thinking about the primary indicators of, of organizational culture, um, artifacts, visible surface tangible aspects of the organization, I tell us something about the culture. Strategic perspectives and values, these are embodied in behavioral patterns that tell us about expectations within that culture, um, tells us how things are done, um, and ideals or goals of the, or, of the organization. You might think of that as organizational mission um, as well, core values, strategic values. Um, and the basic assumptions and beliefs, and this is what's at the core of the institution um, the deepest beliefs uh, about the, uh, again, the mission of the institution and its core values. Now, one thing that we wanted to bring into our conception is a sense of variation because uh, what we were reacting to is in the literature where the portrayals of college-going cultures is such that college-going uh, high schools either have a college-going culture or they don't have a college-going culture. You know, either they have you know, 90% of their students are going off to, to college um, or a very low rate. Um, so we're interested in variation. If you look into the organizational culture uh, literature, um, we see that there, there's a lot of work that is done on variation within organizational cultures. Uh, so the ones we focus on here is on the one hand, thinking of organizational cultures as cohesive and coherent. Um, so a cohesive organizational culture is where those, those values, those uh, core values, are widely shared. They're intensely held throughout the organization. Um, those values are pervasive, and you can see them, in again, in the artifacts, strategic um, values. 
uh, throughout the organization. Um, so that culture has a coherence to it. On the other side is a culture that can be more diffuse, um, or as we really saw in our data, can be segmented, um, such that those core values might be held in certain subcultures within an organization, but not in others, um, where the expected norms for um, behavior or the um, dispositions um, might be differentially uh, uh, distributed throughout an organization. So it has a more diffuse nature to it. And for those of you that are in high schools and are, have this idea of college going and culture in your mind, you can probably begin to see, uh, reflect on how you see this in your daily lives in your schools. The other piece is this concept of organizational obitus. Um, and this comes from Pat McDonough. The, the title of this uh, talk, Social Construction of College-Going Culture, is a uh, direct connection to um, her ideas um, based around the ideas of Pierre Bourdieu. Um, I won't elaborate on this too much, but essentially what she um, has done and others have continued to develop over time is to think about Bourdieu's conception of an individual habitus, which is um, an organized set of dispositions outlooks um, that are deeply embedded in an individual, born out of their upbringing and their social class, um, that guides the way that, they, they, that an individual sees themselves in the world, um, guides the way that they, decision making happens, and thinking about what's possible, what's not possible, um, in the realm of social mobility. And McDonough argues um, and conducted a study that that concept of obitus applies to organizations as well, that organizations um, possess a set of dispositions and outlooks um, about, uh, that are present in the, in the organization about the place of that organization and the members in it um, within a social class uh, stratum. Um, and so these perceptions and these dispositions, again, have to do with social uh, mobility. And what we'll be looking at um, is how central some of these dispositions are. Um, and in fact, we'll focus on one uh, key variation, the centrality of college going in it. So our model is really going to use these two, two conceptions, these two areas, organizational culture and organizational habitus, to construct a typology of college going culture. And we'll talk about how our data uh, informs this type typology um, and a bit later, how we can think about um, implications for um, change and uh, development of college-going cultures in schools. So Jesse's going to talk um, more about the data. So I'm going to take you through the typology now um, and basically go through the two parameters that Anthony just talked about, the organizational culture and the organizational habitus um, that we use to construct the, the typology. Um, so on the first side, I'm going to talk about the organizational culture aspect of the data and what kind of indicators we looked for in the schools to inform where schools fell on the spectrum from having a more cohesive culture to a more diffuse culture specifically around their practices around college going. Um, 
on était trop trop loin. Oh, there we go, sorry. <laughs> um, so, Yeah, so let me go ahead and just go through. First, I'm going to start with organizational culture, and then I'll come back and we'll talk about organizational habitus and the four different cells that we've populated here. Um, so first, when we're talking about organizational culture, when we looked at our schools, we found that they fell within a spectrum from being more cohesive to more diffuse in their practices around college going. And we found three different indicators of a more cohesive environment around college. So one was that there was just general cohesion in college-going efforts, um, meaning that all stakeholders, all staff members were involved in the process for getting kids um, interested in college and preparing them for college. Students across all grade levels were being reached, so there wasn't simply just a triage effort at the senior level of getting kids into college. There was a unified message around college, and so this could be um, a promotion of sending kids to four-year university, or it could just be a general post-secondary educational message in trying to get all kids to move on to college. Um, but there was a consistency in this message across the stakeholders, so you didn't have one teacher promoting it and one teacher kind of not talking about college at all. Um, and so this um, example that we have here is from one of the schools in North Carolina where they talked about this whole school effort um, around college going and trying to reach all the kids. Another indicator that we looked at is whether there was academic cohesion around college going and whether college was being brought into the classroom and into the curriculum. Um, and so we found things like college essays being incorporated into the curriculum, SAT prep. Um, again, we also found things like aligning their graduation requirements for high school with college going requirements. Um, and so that was an important change that was happening in some of these schools. There also was an expanded course offering and an attempt to bring in more AP classes, more dual credit classes, and classes that would be specifically geared towards college. And then finally, there was also this idea of visual cohesion um, around college going. And so we saw things like college posters, college banners peppered throughout the school. This example here is from a school in Texas where they talked about teachers bringing in these college banners into the classroom and that that initiates some discussion amongst the students and piques their interest. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have um, a diffuse school and where there's this diffuse sense of priorities and responsibilities around college and college really becomes a compartmentalized task within the school where some people are responsible for promoting or preparing students for college and it kind of gets pushed to those select people, maybe just a senior counselor or maybe just a small group of people interested in it. Um, so this is an example of a counselor in North Carolina talking about how her responsibility was really making sure that her kids stayed in school and didn't drop out of high school. 
and that college really got pushed to the college advisor who was in the school, um, again, on a full-time basis, but it became that person's responsibility. Again, also going back to this idea of college talk that we saw in some of the um, other research, there was these diffuse discussions or pockets of college talk throughout the school where some people were talking about it more than others, which was targeting specific kinds of students. So this exchange here is between a group of students at a Missouri school, and as you can see from the highlighted section that some of the teachers, like the AP teachers, were really talking about college, whereas the regular classes, they didn't really do anything. Um, so you could see this difference in terms of the academic level of the classes, but there was also an individualized component to this where later on in the discussion, the student talks about a particular teacher who talks about it all the time and that she's strict about getting kids um, into college and getting them prepared for college. And that was that particular teacher's choice. Um, and so there was this kind of individual aspect to how college was talked about. Now I'm gonna move on to also now the um, other side of the typology, the organizational additives, and talk about um, what it means when we're talking about the centrality of this disposition that Anthony is talking about. And what we mean by that is how central what is college going to the mission of the school? How high of a priority was it for the school? And where did it fall on that spectrum? And so I'm gonna start by talking about a high centrality school environment. Um, and one of the main indicators of this was that there was a college for all mentality within the school and that college was the next step for students and that it was appropriate for all students to continue on for college. Um, and that was pervasive throughout the school. In addition to that kind of mentality, there, college was also seen as an expectation. So it wasn't that it was just appropriate for students, but they actually expected all of their students to go on to college. Um, and so you see this in this exchange, or this discussion with this counselor in Texas who talks about expecting every student to apply to college. And we would find that in the requirements that the school made for their students and that every student had to fill out an application, fill out the FAFSA, et cetera. Another element of this is that college became foundational for all post-secondary discussions and practices. Um, and basically college became a vehicle um, for addressing other issues within the school, seemingly not, not related to college. Um, and so this is actually a discussion with an administrator in Rhode Island who talks about how when he sits down with students to talk with them about discipline or grades, he weaves college into that conversation and uses that as an opportunity to ask them what are they going to be doing next year, what is their plans. So college, be, everything kind of becomes wrapped around this message for college. Now on the other side of that, um, we have a low centrality school environment where college is less of a priority um, within the school. And so um, one piece of this is that college is an option for students, but it's not for every student. Um, and oftentimes this took a much more kind of negative approach towards college going, where in this particular school in Missouri, we have an advisor talking about particular teachers who have basically lost hope for their students. Um, and so she described them as these dream killers that they didn't feel that all of their kids were capable of going on to college. So that sort of mentality became pervasive in the school. And in these schools in particular, it was problematic because these, um, the majority of these kids are first generation, so they aren't necessarily getting that encouragement from home or getting the resources that they need at home. 
Another piece of this is that college was a lower priority in the school and that it became overshadowed by other day-to-day -day challenges and requirements uh, such as district changes, new district requirements, new curriculum, um, things, little things sort of that happen every day, disciplinary issues, attendance issues. Um, and so college became, instead of being wrapped in a discussion to address these other issues, it became something that was extra to do. And when it's seen as kind of just like a bonus that maybe you'll get a discussion about college, then it often got kind of put to the back burner by teachers. Um, and especially this was problematic for counselors because they didn't necessarily have the time to reach out to students um, in a lot of these schools with the high caseloads that they had. Um, and so, and going back to the um, um, the original typology, we basically then had four different um, cells that we filled with a high centrality cohesive school, a high centrality diffuse school, a low centrality um, diffuse school, and a low centrality cohesive school. This particular data, we actually were only able to populate three of those cells, and we didn't find a school that fit a low centrality cohesive environment. In subsequent um, data that we've collected, we've actually have been able to identify those, and I'll talk about those towards the end of the presentation. And what I want to move on to now is how these different um, types of college-going cultures actually looked on the ground and what variation we found in conditions um, within these different schools. And I'm going to talk about three different types of conditions. And mostly I'm going to be focusing on this idea of cultural segmentation. And what we mean by that are gaps in the culture um, within these different type, types of college-going culture. And so it's important to first point out that across all of the schools, regardless of their typology, um, we found some levels of cultural segmentation or weak points or gaps in the college-going culture. But among a more cohesive and highly central, um, centralized school, we found much fewer instances of this segmentation. Um, and we find the segmentation existing in three different dimensions primarily within the school. One is again at grade level um, in that schools primarily end up targeting seniors or upperclassmen when they're doing any kind of outreach for college. Um, and so we often see segmentation at the lower grade levels in schools. Another is by academic performance in that um, schools often target the most high achieving students, um, students taking the most advanced courses um, and the regular level students um, or students outside of the AP classes don't really get that kind of attention with regards to college. And finally, another feature is just personal attributes of the students. So um, staff members often talked about highly motivated or highly involved students, uh, students who would seek out the information on their own um, or students who were involved in other kinds of extracurricular activities and were able to form their own relationships with staff members. And so I'm going to go through the three different um, types that we were able to find in our data and talk about how cultural segmentation looked within these three types of schools. So in a highly central, cohesive environment, we see very formal and both informal and individualized outreach to upperclassmen and higher performing students. Um, and so there was this um, organized, um, formalized process for reaching these students. And often in addition to that, there was also formal processes for reaching the lower classmen as well. 
um, and that there was this attempt to mitigate these cultural segmentation issues that we found um, and actually try to reach out um, in a direct way to all students. And so this is actually a description of a college advisor talking about organizing a campus tour of a local college and that it was her intention to reach out to students of all GPA um, levels and across all grade levels and that she could actually use the college tour as sort of like a carrot to incentivize them to think about college and give them something to work towards. Um, so in this kind of highly centralized, cohesive environment, it's also much easier to reach these students across all grade levels because you have more staff members who are involved in the process and there's more buy-in um, to the idea of getting students um, prepared for college. Now in a highly centralized, diffuse environment, there is still that um, formal outreach and also these informal, individualized discussions at the upperclassmen levels and particularly for the highest performing students. But we do get some limited outreach at the lower grade levels as well. Um, and, and also with students who are less motivated and who are high, um, lower performing students. Um, and so this is also a discussion about how there is this awareness that they are going to be reaching out to these students. So they try to um, have students exposed at least to college, even the younger students within the school through posters. Um, and they have this awareness that they need to reach out to immigrants, refugee students. Um, and so they understand where the gaps are and there is this limited a, a attempt to try to reach these students. Now in a low centralized and diffuse um, environment, then we see primarily formal and individualized outreach exclusively targeted to upperclassmen, higher performing students, and self-motivated students, and often it's students who embody all of these characteristics, um, and that there's very sporadic um, outreach to other types of students, and that's primarily dependent on whether you have a teacher who is interested in doing that, um, and so there's no kind of organization around that effort. Um, and so in this exchange here, you can see that they're talking about really only um, targeting the top 10% students um, or the top students at the school. Now another type of uh, variation and condition is how college-oriented practices are organized within the school um, and how that varies across the different kinds of environments. And so I'm just going to talk through these very briefly. Um, but we, in a more highly centralized, cohesive environment, we see, again, more formal college preparation requirements um, around um, college going. And so things like requiring students to take the SAT, uh, requiring them to fill out college applications. There's also a physical presence of college going within the school and that this advising program in particular is centrally located within the school in a high traffic area and there's a real intention to put them there in order to bring more students into the process. Uh, the college advising program is also integrated more um, deeply into the, the counseling structure so that counselors and advisors are working in tandem and that they're deepening and really supplementing the work that the counselors can do. And so counselors can help identify students and then send them to the advisor for deeper discussions around college. Um, and then 
Also in terms of the role that the college advisor can play in a more cohesive and centralized environment, they're really able to actionize the mission of the school and the goals and disposition around college going. So whereas often you find that staff may not have the time to do it, advisors can actually sit and work with the students more directly and give um, students a step-by-step -step kind of process of what they need to do follow up with students, um, and so it really actionizes the goals that the school may have around college going. They also are in a position to address segmentation because um, they can find where these weak points in the college going culture are by being there every day on a full time basis and by working closely with students. Um, and so in a more cohesive centralized school, they can really push them even further in terms of strengthening their college going culture because they have more staff to work with, more teachers who are willing to let them come into their classroom. Um, and so the advisor can play an even greater role, whereas in a low centrality diffuse environment, um, they really work in isolation um, or with a handful of allies. And so it limits their ability. Um, and so this is actually our typology that um, in some of the schools that we've organized. And this is our first set of um, site visits that we did and how we organized them. And what I want to particularly point out in the typology that's important is that we really mean this to be a fluid typology um, in that schools do not necessarily just fall in one category and stay there. Um, they may be on the edge, they may be um, bordering to um, categories or be transitioning. These are all transitioning schools. So we really mean this to be a fluid tool to understand how schools can transition from one type to another. Um, and in particular, I wanted to point out the Texas schools in the middle here that are transitioning between a diffuse and a cohesive environment. These are schools that were well aware that they had a lot of work to do with their college-going culture in terms of reaching more students um, and that they were really utilizing the college um, advising program to try to reach those students that they hadn't been able to reach before. Um, and so one of the issues that keeps them from being cohesive that is true for a lot of these schools is staff turnover is often um, consistent within these school environments. So um, in particular, they get new counselors regularly, new leadership regularly, and that can often keep an environment from being more cohesive in their college-going efforts. There's less consistency around the message that students are sending, and there's less thought around do we have specific goals that we want um, students to be um, achieving around college. Um, and so these two schools in particular, there was this awareness, and so they were moving in the direction of cohesion, but they still kind of fell within this diffuse category because they were dealing with these contextual challenges. Um, and as, um, as I mentioned before, in that first round, we weren't able to find a school that fit this low centrality cohesive um, type, but we felt that it was still important to keep it there. Um, and we felt that it was probably just a limitation of our sample. Um, and then we've, in our newest set of cases, we've done a more in-depth case study of just Missouri schools, and we visited eight Missouri schools in the fall. Um, and we did multi-day um, long site visits. Um, so we were at the school for several days, talked with many students and conducted observations um, in order to get a, a richer picture of their college-going culture. Uh, and we found two schools that fell more within this low centrality, cohesive um, environment. And these were schools that, one in particular, that was a rural school where 
college wasn't as central to their mission as a school because they had this realistic view of their students and what they thought were options for them after graduation. And college wasn't one that they thought was available to everyone. But there was cohesion in the um, environment of the school in terms of talking about post-secondary <coughs> outcomes. They wanted some kind of post-secondary something for students, whether it be the military, whether it be college, whether it be a trade school. So there was cohesion around this effort, but college wasn't as high of a priority. Um, and so that's one example of one school that fell within that category. And then we're still um, hoping to use this data from Missouri in particular to um, expand the typology and think uh, more deeply about some of these variation in conditions in the schools. And Anthony is going to take you some of the implications. Thanks, Jessica. So um, first, uh, I think one point of clarification, some of you might have been scratching your heads and, and, and thinking about this. Um, I should have given you a little bit more uh, detail. So these are schools that um, are in transition, and they're in transition in the sense that they want to improve the uh, post-secondary um, um, outcomes of their students, getting them to college, et cetera. Um, and they're doing that by um, uh, being involved in this advising program. Um, and the advising program is present in all of these case study schools. Um, it puts a, a college advisor that's not on the payroll of the district in these schools full time, five days a week. Um, so these are schools that are trying to take advantage of that to develop their college-going cultures. Um, and as we saw in our typology, one interesting uh, result of that um, is that there are schools that still have a very diffuse <coughs> um, culture and a low centrality um, culture with regard to dispositions toward, towards college-going. So just a point of clarification. Um, so a few implications from the work where we stand um, at the moment. Um, so certainly there are practical Im implications. As we, we looked into these schools, um, we were able to identify um, um, certain key factors and how uh, these cultures are developing and how they may not be developing um, very well. Um, school leadership has come up uh, quite a bit. We have a paper, um, if you're gonna be in San Francisco in the next three weeks, we have an AER paper that looks at um, the relationship between um, that provider program um, and the school staff um, and the principal, the role of the principal comes up there and the teachers um, in particular um, and how those relationships may uh, foster the development of these cultures um, um, or, or in some cases impede that. Um, uh, as I said, there's a, a full-time college advisor in these schools um, but there was variation in terms of the extent to which schools integrated that advisor into the life of the school, into the structure of the school, into the organization of the school. Um, and those, as you might guess, that uh, integrated the advisor well, and we see this in terms of the relationships um, with the staff, in terms of the student perceptions of whether this person is just a part of the school or uh, an external person. Um, that that has some implications for how well, um, um, how cohesive the culture is around uh, college going. Um, and then structured opportunities for staff, that really has to do with the, um, the centrality of college going in the school and involving all of staff 
um, in that. So in thinking about these ideas of uh, centrality and cohesiveness, you can begin to think about um, how you pull uh, stack together around a mission, around a cohering idea, um, and how you integrate the staff uh, with the people that are doing uh, at least the, the frontline work with regard to college preparation. Thinking about external providers, so this is a story about external providers coming into a school, um, which is a common story um, in high schools. <coughs> um, and in this set of case studies, we begin to understand how external providers can actually play a role um, in the development of these college-going cultures. Um, in our cases, what we look to is um, the um, knowledge and support that they can bring into um, the school, particularly around uh, the college uh, access, the college aspiration, the college uh, uh, choice um, process. Um, and how that's much more intensified with a full-time person um, in the school five days a week and a person that's well integrated um, into the staff. And then lastly, um, where we started is the conceptual implication. Um, again, going back to the limitations that we saw with the pictures, uh, conceptions of college-going cultures out there in the literature as fairly one-dimensional. Um, and so clearly we need to get beyond sort of the traditional indicators of test-taking rates, FAFSA completion rates, um, et cetera. Um, while those are important, they don't give us much um, to hold on to to think about what are those factors within the school that lead to those kinds of numbers, whether they're high numbers um, or low numbers. Um, and so we need to uh, understand better what those empirical linkages are. Um, and our hope is with this typology, we can begin to construct better research that gets at those linkages. Um, and as I said for a preview, um, we're beginning to do that with deeper case studies. Um, we just completed a set in Missouri. We are planning a set um, in New York that will be even um, over a longer term. Um, so thank you very much. We're certainly open for any questions. How useful in your experience are AVID classes? So, uh, the question was about AVID and um, so useful in terms of developing a college going culture. I guess that's how we'll address it. Um, so um, AVID is a, a pretty good model, particularly focused on the academic preparation side of it. Um, and as you know, in AVID they do bring in some of the college knowledge pieces into that as well. Um, I think what we find is um, in terms of thinking about, again, that cohesive uh, college-going culture is the extent to which AVID can impact an entire school um, as opposed to folks that are just um, in that program. Um, 
And the other piece of it that we see really clearly here is the continuous presence um, of a staff person that's there that is viewed, that's integrated and viewed as someone that's a regular part of the school. Um, so that bleeds over into other kinds of relationships um, within the school between staff um, and students. Um, so if our overall goal is to create this cohesive and coherent um, uh, disposition around college going, there are some limitations with part-time programs and with programs that um, might be focused only on one aspect of readiness. Jesse, do you have anything to add particularly about um, schools that have a number of um, providers on site at a school? Because that's quite a, a common arrangement as well, right? Not just AVID, you might have a Garrett program, you might have a local program, you might have an off-site program that takes students off-site. Um, yeah. Jesse, you want to say something I about that? I think, I mean, from what I would hear from staff members, AVID was spoken about very positively, um, and it definitely reaches a particular demographic that needs to be reached in terms of college preparation. But in terms of addressing those other segmentation issues, it creates a cohort kind of model that then it becomes like, if you're just a student who isn't part of AVID, you know, can you go and ask the AVID coordinator a question? You don't really know what your access is. And there is also this sense of, can we, incorporate students halfway through the, the, their high school career, you know, if they didn't start as freshmen. And so there is a lot of the methods that AVID uses, I think, are very um, positive, and some of the schools would actually adopt them school-wide, like the Cornell notes and things like that, um, hoping to help teach students more study methods for college. Um, but there was still that um, isolated aspect to it that didn't address this cohesion. I was just wondering um, the role of the district, the extent to which the district can be an influential factor. It's, you know, the district leadership, accountability, mechanisms, and, you know, incentives for helping develop a college-going culture. And whether or not within a district you would see a variation, you would see variation among schools within a district about the college-going culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. It's uh, uh, one direction that we're headed to. Um, but the district can have uh, quite an impact. Um, so th there are some districts, for example, that might take that on um, and then begin to set uh, expectations and requirements for the schools. So that might be things like we want every senior to submit a FAFSA, right? That that's your goal and you've got to do it by an X date or something like that. Um, and so we're seeing that, that districts can have that kind of, um, that kind of impact. Um, as you might guess, there's, um, there's a, a, a district mandate and then there's sort of the implementation of that um, at the school level. I think one of the things that we um, are beginning to think about because we haven't addressed your question uh, yet in our data um, is um, what happens to that mandate as it gets um, into the school. Um, that mandate might suggest a particular priority. Um, that not, might not be held at the same level within the school, um, or how that priority gets enacted differently across, say, teachers versus the uh, counseling team uh, versus the principal. Um, and so even around uh, what might be thought of as a common school goal that's local, 
um, we see some uh, differentiation in how those goals are considered and implemented. Um, whether the, the, the district mandate would carry more weight, I think that's, that's something we're going to try to look into. Um, yeah, I mean, the district actually had a huge role in some of these schools in terms of when the district decided that they want to implement requirements, the school kind of hurried everybody together and tried to figure out how to do it. Um, and in some cases that, depending on, again, how it was implemented in the school, it didn't necessarily have a very positive impact because students just felt that they, oh, here's something else I have to do to graduate and here's a requirement. And there wasn't a lot of discussion around it. So it just kind of became like a, a huge Excel spreadsheet that counselors had to fill out and that was the extent of it. Yeah. Certainly one conjecture is, is how the school leadership takes on that mandate. Right, so this is part of our overall goal as a school. It's a positive thing that we that we are engaged in, as opposed to it's a checkbox thing that we need to do, right? Um, and <coughs> we saw some of that reaction from, um, in our case, the external providers that come in, um, and then are um, immediately told you need to do this because the district requires it, as opposed to here's our vision for college going, and this is a piece of that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm wondering whether you looked at any interaction that might occur between the way in which uh, and the extent to which a school is focused on and providing services for all kids to look at college and things like funding, the number of counselors per student, um, school size, or other sort of structural variables that might make a difference in what schools might be able to do irrespective of what they'd like to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the scope of our, the research project that this rides upon, we didn't have the opportunity to do that, particularly in choosing the kind of, uh, choosing the cases uh, within the universe of our, um, I, I guess within the population of our, our broader study. Um, and we really were focused on um, the relationship between this external program and what was happening inside the school. Um, um, there is some variation with regard to um, school size um, and location. Uh, for example, we went to a number of rural schools that tended to be um, small, and so the, the uh, relationships developed there with the external program in the school were, were different. Um, so there are size factors that come into play there. Funding we really haven't um, looked at. I really like that you're looking at transitions. Um, most of the research tells us what it looks like if we got there, but doesn't really tell us very much about how to get there. So the looking at these schools in transition seems to me like a real benefit. Um, do you know anything about, I assume that these were schools that did not have a college going culture before they initiated this program, or if it was, it was a sort of fledgling beginnings of one. Do you have any notion of what motivated the, the school to take advantage of this opportunity? Because I would think that that would say something about w which schools in which you might have a good chance of creating this. And then if you were going to give, so this is a two-part question, 
if I was the principal of a school that already existed, not a new charter school or something like that, uh, uh, that already existed, that didn't have high expectations for the students, those are fundamentally really hard things to change. The, the teachers and, the, and the, all of the participants in a school, including the students and, and parents and everybody else, to change their basic beliefs about what these students can do strikes me as a very challenging initiative. What advice would you give me as a principal in a school about what are the first three things you need to do to launch something moving in this direction? Did you want to talk about uh, um, maybe particularly Texas, about how some schools, uh, why they decided to participate in the program and what the draw is? Yeah, I mean, the first draw is it's free for the school, so it's kind of um, already appealing. Um, the other thing is um, with the schools is a lot of them, I think that is kind of also part of the sample, part of being a transitional school is you do sort of have this underlying desire to maybe make some change. Um, how extensive that is varied by school. Um, so there was this desire to help the counseling staff out. You see in a lot of these schools a diminishing counseling staff and so this became an opportunity to take some of the load off of them. It also became an opportunity to be able to give them more stuff that didn't have to do with college so we can have them do more testing and things like that that don't have anything to do with college. So there are different reasons why. Um, most of the schools were very happy to have the opportunity and jumped at it um, just to have this extra resource. The main challenge is finding space for somebody on a full-time basis um, and trying to integrate them into the school and the school definitely went about that in different ways and some of them really wanted them to meet everybody on staff and really become part of the staff and be seen as a staff member and other schools it was much more you're just going to work over here and we're going to send students to you. Yeah, I mean, these were all schools that, um, and, and, and about the, the nature of the college-run culture coming in, um, there's quite a range. You know, there are some schools where the college-going culture was fairly well-defined already. Um, and the inception of the program was basically to support this existing conception of what their college-going culture is. You know, we could plug this person in to this part of it. Um, whereas in some schools, they really needed that person coming in to help them conceptualize, to think about well, what does it mean, right? And how does different, do different parts of the school work in concert um, to do that? So we saw that kind um, of variation. Um, we didn't see schools that, uh, where this isn't, um, where, where they have a, a huge cultural problem, I think. Um, but we have some sense of how you might begin to overcome that. So in our, um, in our, the paper we're currently writing, for example, um, there's some focus on, uh, on the leadership um, and how the principal in, in particular um, can take, um, take a goal for the, uh, for the school um, and, uh, and infuse that throughout the staff um, or simply delegate the accomplishment of that goal or movement toward that goal to a particular person um, and therefore sort of undercut its importance. Um, um, I mean, that's sort of a trite answer that leadership matters. Um, we hope to get a, a different uh, take on that in our upcoming cases. 
This is what's great about research. I can always say we're going to do that. <laughs> so we're going to, we're proposing to study schools um, that have this program and schools that don't in the same district. Um, so when you remove that program, or if you have a school that never had this program, um, what does their college going culture look like? What are the relationships, the working relationships um, that revolve around college going look like in those schools? Um, what is the role of leadership um, in these schools? So, you know, it may, there are probably schools out there where even in the absence of a program such as the one that we are studying, strong leadership can get everyone on board. Um, and that's something we intend to study. I think another, sorry, another thing that a principal could do um, is that one of the things that was very moving in a lot of these schools was to have a sense of pride in their students. And so seeing them have these accomplishments at the end of the year, you know, posting where students got accepted, how much money they received in scholarships, that some of the teachers who were kind of skeptical, that really moved them too. So there, I mean, there is that sense that it's definitely a slow process, but seeing even little accomplishments was effective. Uh, I didn't hear any talk about the role of the colleges in enforce, reinforcing, transmitting messages. As you know, when we worked on the Bridge Project together, our theory was it was more effective at, with, a, with the high school sending messages to students and signals and the colleges reinforcing it. So I, I'm surprised that didn't come up, particularly in some of these rural areas where I think the relationships with the colleges, local colleges, might be quite strong. So how does that figure into the co college uh, going culture and what is the role of post-secondary education in all of this? I think that's important um, for sure. Um, I think that the issue is that some of these schools, they do have these kind of established relationships, um, and some of them rather limited or surface level relationships because they don't have the time to really invest in them. So we had some schools where there was um, an IB coordinator, for example, who really valued any relationship she was able to get with college admissions, um, admissions advisors, things like that, but that she, wasn't able to sustain those over the years and that with the turnover in the school, sustaining those relationships was very difficult. But it definitely, the relationships that they do have and in these rural environments is they do kind of have this set um, kind of limited view, worldview of which colleges they're sending students to. So that definitely affects the college going culture and that they saw, okay, well the majority of our students are going to junior college and so that's kind of where their focus was. Um, and so I think the relationships that they have, the long-standing ones, kind of can limit in some ways the development of their culture. And the, the, the grand vision that, that you had, Mike, which I think is still a vision, is it's not there. Um, where you would have post-secondary institutions, not just working alongside, but working inside of these high schools, um, not just to feed students into their institutions, right? Um, that kind of collaboration is, is, is not there. It's, you know, what we're seeing is really, um, it, it's, it's left to the external providers for the most part um, to do this kind of work. Um, and the counseling staff, the staff who sees that perhaps as their purview, um, still does not have the capacity to do that. And that's why the external providers are brought in. So no movement in that area.
against the glass. And that outcome of the gentleman was the blue card. One question I had was about the role of the students in creating college-going culture, um, just alumni who actually go to college and um, culture as being something that's shared between the students themselves. And w what would it look like to integrate them into the process? Um, because I understand how the institutions are talking to each other, the schools and the post-secondary institutions, but what does it mean for culture to live outside of the walls of the schools and with the students themselves? That, that's a great question. So another, uh, um, some more information about this uh, external program. So this external program um, hires uh, freshly minted uh, college graduates, um, often from that local area, trains them to be college advisors, and then places them in those schools. Um, and so the best case scenario is that these college advisors are near peers. They're not much older. Um, they come from similar backgrounds, similar neighborhoods, um, but they're college graduates, so they have that extra set of information um, and it could possibly impact the culture that way. And certainly we do see that those near-peer characteristics are very um, recognized, highly noticed by students, by teachers, by other, other staff, um, and seen as um, and, and seen as uh, characteristics that students um, are, are put at ease with, gravitate to, but also see as, as role models. Um, so that's not exactly what you're talking about in terms of bringing perhaps um, real, real, actual alumni from those schools um, in. But I think it's part of that same, uh, same mechanism that might do that. Thank you very much. Uh, Anthony, I had uh, a couple of questions, and you could either answer one or both if you want. The first one is, to what extent were parents advocates for the transitions that went on at these schools? And uh, were they happy with the transition as it was taking place? Uh, did they see that it was really moving in the right direction as far as their, they were concerned with respect to their own children? So just the whole advocacy piece with respect to uh, to. Uh, to the transition to make it to make these places uh, college uh, readiness kinds of culture of college things. The other question that's related to this, I, in some work that I'm doing, I've, I found the students ex exit exit school college ready. They've got the attitudinal thing about they're college ready. They got a, a, the A to G requirements. They've got the grade point average in some of these in some of these kinds of schools. However, when they get to college, that college readiness attitude mentality shifts in the uh, very high leaving school, leaving college, going back to the community, becomes a really serious problem because then they're also worried about going back to the same community with the fact that they've now failed in college. And it's, it's kind of really an interesting kind of piece that's going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I mean, the, so you're probably familiar with some uh, uh, nonprofits that um, follow students, um, not just prepare them for college, for, but, but follow them into college, um, like the, the Posse program, right? Um, that tries to maintain that connection, um, maintain uh, the, the attitudes, the development of skills for college um, success. Um, the, the program that we are studying um, has some aspirations for that. They, they don't want to be a program that just gets them in the door. 
um, and for them to not be successful. Um, they haven't really worked out uh, a way to continue that presence um, in their lives. Um, but that is uh, uh, a very important aspect of this. So particularly when we talk about students that um, um, you know, may have a lot of support while they're in high schools, but then it disappears when they get to college. Um, Jesse, you did most of this, the, the interviews with parents. Why don't you speak to that? Um, I think the parent piece of it is the problem is kind of a lack of awareness that the transition is happening. Um, so they don't necessarily know that their school is pushing college more Although I never receive any kind of negative feedback on that, students definitely, or parents rely on the school to help their kids get into college. Um, the advisors reported definitely some instances, um, sometimes, sometimes cultural or um, reasons why parents didn't want their kids to be going to college. And there was a lot of work to be done on that front. And that happened more on a very case-by-case -case basis and not school-wide. But if a particular student had some opportunity the parent was upset with it, the advisor could talk to them, the counselor could talk to them. So there definitely is some pushback, um, but it's a very limited outreach to parents. That's one area that all the schools recognize as being the weakest point of their college-going culture. I mean, the, the pushback didn't seem to be uh, very common, um, but, um, but there was a, an awareness of it and um, an attempt to address it, and that's through sort of parent education and uh, parent relationships. Um, but that was very, that's still a very difficult task um, just to get access to parents um, because they're often um, working, not available, um, those kinds of things. Other questions? Yes, Lana in the back here. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> I had a question about whether or not you found. Um, Anything on the, the role that data plays and data use uh, plays in, you know, a stronger college-going culture um, among the principals and the teachers? So what kind of data? Um, I mean, basically, some kind of uh, more kind of systemic way of looking at the outcomes for students through a college-going lens and then potentially targeting those students. Um, you know, based on those outcomes or, you know, shortcomings um, that didn't necessarily indicate, you know, that they were on a path to, to college. Oh, um, the extent that it was used, that data was used in that way? Um, um, yeah, in some schools they did use data to identify students at the lower end of the academic spectrum um, in outreach to those students or um, they would track students who come in and talk to the um, advisor. So they did use data in that sense, but um, not in a systematic way that I think that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean the overall sense we got was, was that data, um, data didn't drive behavior or values. Um, the values drove the use of data if data was available. Um, so um, I don't think in any of the schools that we talked about, um, um, data was central in terms of the way they were thinking about um, accessing students. Um, 
it did come come across when uh, when there was a, a good relationship between counselors or the counseling office um, and the advisors. Um, what they can do, as Christy was doing, um, provide referrals um, back and forth. Um, have you seen this student? Have you spoken to this student yet? I think this student um, could benefit from college advising, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, not in sort of a whole school kind of way. Can, can you talk for a second about any specific actions taken by your uh, the college advisors to develop a college-going culture um, in some of these schools? Uh, definitely. I mean, they do. They have some shared practices. I mean, this is a national program, but each state does operate slightly differently um, and is run has a different director. So they. But they do have some shared practices. So they do a thing called, it's called Decision Day. And it's something that all of the schools do at the end of the year. And it's a celebration of anyone who has some kind of acceptance or whether it be military or whether it be college um, related. And it's, it's sort of a party, basically, to honor these students. A lot of it is around recognition. So doing announcements, so-and-so got into here, um, and trying to just recognize students. Um, they do presentations, um, shared presentations in classrooms throughout the school year. Um, they are given a budget every year also, so they organize campus trips and pay for them. And so that is a huge thing for the schools who can't afford to take uh, students on these trips. So they do a lot more campus trips than these schools would have ever done without them. So things like that. Yeah, I mean, what, what I think they do uh, most in addition to those formalized activities is um, work on relationships. Um, that there's an understanding that the relationship with um, other teachers, because teachers provide access to students, uh, the relationship to the counseling staff, um, and the relationship to the administration are all really important um, to, to further a college-going culture. Um, that this advisor is often seen as the person with sort of the up-to-date information, um, the training, um, um, the ideas, and getting buy-in is a matter of developing those relationships. And in some schools, um, getting that buy-in is much more difficult than, than in others. Um, but it's obviously an integral piece to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Janice.